If you're a visitor here today, welcome, welcome. Um, my name's Raj. If you've got a Bible, um, you might want to start turning to the book of Philippians, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to be reading chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. Philippians 4, 10 to 20. This is the last time in the ser- sermon series that we'll be looking at this fantastic God-inspired, wisdom-rich, joy-giving book. That's a big claim, isn't it, for just a book? In fact, generally, many people today are shocked that Christians like you and me take the Bible seriously at all. We preach it every week. We We look at it deeper in our community groups sometimes. Maybe you think that this morning, what on earth has the Bible got to do with anything? Times have changed. We've moved on. The Bible is outdated. I used to think that. I genuinely used to think that. But I came to the conclusion that I was wrong. In fact, if you look at history, it's the other way around. We live in a world where the truth is always shifting. The wisdom of this age, if you like, is always on its way out. Tim Keller, uh, a leader of a large church in Manhattan, and this is my favorite selfie, very insightfully points out what the educated and intellectuals of one generation believe will always be mercilessly ridiculed and discredited by the educated and intellectuals of the next generation. We know that, don't we? People will laugh at your iPods and iPads and iPhones 50 years from now. That's true about loads of stuff, actually. Uh, Think about views on marriage or sexuality or relationships or race or education, philosophy, ethics, on the list goes on and on and on. Someone put it like this, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. But listen, Christian doctrine, biblical truth, God's wisdom has remained pretty much unchanged for the last 20 centuries. Really? I mean, that's just a fact. Yes, there have been ups and downs. There might have been controversies. There are controversies now. But essentially, you can still read biblical truth from, say, the 1500s, and it's still life-changing, applicable today. That's a fact. That's a fact. I didn't know that then. But that is a fact. Melvin Bragg. Who remembers Melvin Bragg? Or listens to Melvin Bragg? Not a Christian. But he wrote a book on the King James Bible and he writes, you may be a Christian, you may be anti-Christian or, uh, or of another religion or none. You may be an atheist fundamentalist and think the Bible is mon- monstrous. A book to be dismissed or derided. But whoever you are, the King James Bible has driven the making of, the wor- of that world over the last 400 years, often in the most unexpected ways. Still does. Listen, that's why we read and study and apply the Bible to our lives in this church and many churches like it across Teesside. We regard it as God's living word, helpful and fruitful to us and all of humanity for its greater good and for it to connect humanity with God. As we unpack it, we ask God, we ask, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will make the Bible come alive in our lives. Make this world a better place. Help us, support us. Come Lord Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. 
Do that this morning, I pray. So with that in mind, let's read, shall we? Philippians 4, 10 to 20. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him, Jesus, who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be accredited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received, now that I have received from, a, uh, from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And you know what? My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a passage. What a passage. So this morning we're going to be looking at another aspect, the final aspect of joy, rejoicing, as we finish this series in the book of Philippines. That, might, that doesn't mean we stop rejoicing, by the way. We keep going. It's one of our values, isn't it? We rejoice, we welcome, we inspire, we go. Throughout the history of the church, being a disciple, following the joy-bringer himself, Jesus, has always involved habits, disciplines, things that we do to help us grow in God. Things like reflection on Scripture, prayer, confession, giving thanks, um, celebration and so on. The sacraments too. Uh, we don't call them that here, but things like communion, breaking bread, baptism, the public reading of the Bible... Um, highlighting the importance of the church together as a means of discipling one another. The Methodists later on brought in works of mercy as a church thing, doing good, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned, feeding and clothing those in need, earning, saving and giving, what they're called works of mercy. These are biblical ways, habits, if you like, of growing in the joy of Jesus. But... The problem with all these things is that many people, even today, can make them into the goal itself. We can fall into the trap of thinking, if I do all these 20 or whatever things, I'll be a good Christian. Or even worse, if I do all these things, God will love me more or owe me more. That's religion, Jubilee. That's not Christianity. That's legalism. The Apostle Paul was always furious when Christians started thinking like that. These habits, as Paul is so clear to highlight throughout his letters, are, a mean, are the means to the greatest goal of all. 
We've heard it already, isn't it? Haven't we? In Philippians 3. The greatest goal. I want to know Christ. Yes, yes, yes. To know the power of his resurrection. That's the goal. When I was little in my dad's shop, I used to have to pull up a beer crate um, to, to, to this kind of massively stacked up high tower of boxes of crisps to get the one on top, the favourite crisps of all, Ringo's, cheese and onion flavour. My favourite, my absolute favourite, a king of crisps. Remember them? Remember them? Remember them. Listen, terrible analogy. These disciplines, these habits are the beer crate, if you like, to get the greatest goal, the Ringo's. I want to know Christ more and more, the power of his resurrection. There are means to get there. And this morning we're going to be ending, and I spent a little bit of time uh, talking about that, because this morning we're going to be ending the series with probably one of the most greatest and releasing habits, disciplines, means of enjoying Jesus more, which many of us probably don't think of in that way, and that's the whole area of stewardship, uh, finances, possessions, and generous giving. Okay? Don't you just love it when the, uh, uh, when the elder preaches on giving? Yes, I do. Uh, it's like what the Apostle Paul says in verse 17. Uh, not that I desire your gifts. I don't actually need them, says Paul. Odd, odd thank you letter. What I desire most of all is that more be accredited to your account. May God, my God will meet all your needs in Jesus Christ. The message version puts it like this. Not that I'm looking for handouts, but I, do want to, but I do want you to experience the blessing that comes from generosity. Biblical generosity, Jubilee, is one of God's ways of changing you, serving others, and showcasing the glory, the majesty, the wonder of Jesus to the world. Wow! If you're a visitor here this morning, don't worry. We won't be locking the doors and shaking you upside down and emptying your pockets. This isn't a trap. You're safe here, don't worry. Uh, Actually, we don't talk about money lots, but we do take it very seriously. So hopefully as you listen, it might challenge you in areas of your life uh, and spending and what you hold dear and precious, maybe too tightly. It might It might even point you to the greatest, greatest giver of all, Jesus, who you've been worshipping this morning. Jesus himself taught on money and possessions about 25% of the time. He challenged us with sayings like, your wallet is the place your heart reveals itself most accurately. Slight paraphrase. It's all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God sees the importance of it, even though we might shy away from it, even if it makes us feel guilty or awkward. That happens. Listen, God wants to free us from that this morning. He does. If we understand biblical stewardship well, it's dynamite jubilee. It's totally releasing and joy-bringing to us and others. So let's look at two things which will magically turn into five things, uh, preacher's license, about the whole area of stewardship, sharing your finances. 
So firstly, what is biblical stewardship? This is one definition. Biblical stewardship is looking after the gifts that have been given to us on trust by God, time, money, power, abilities, and possessions. Although I'm going to be speaking primarily about finances this morning, it's not just about that. Um, For the shared benefit and service of others and for the glory of God. See verse 15. It says this, When I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Shared with me, he says. This is the heart of stewardship jubilee. No one in the Philippian church claimed that any of their possessions was exclusively their own. That's challenging to me. Everything we have, Jubilee, belongs to God. You see, a steward is someone who manages, looks after, uses wisely the assets, the possessions of someone else. It's not theirs to mess about with. And because it's not theirs to mess about with, they have to be careful with what they do with it, thoughtful about what they do with it. Honour, and uh, they've got to honour the person who's asking them to steward this Uh, these finances. That's what a good steward does on behalf of someone else. I think I've used this analogy before, but it's helpful. When our kids were about three, five years old, something like that, one of their favorite words was mine. Mine. Have you noticed that? That, That's mine, Daddy. Uh, My seat, my Millennium Falcon, my Coke, uh, my side of the car, my bed, my TV, mine. Hilarious for a three-year-old, actually. Because uh, the reality of it is that all their stuff wasn't actually theirs at all. It was mine. <laughs> they didn't earn it. But, but these three-year-olds, these immature three-year-olds, couldn't get their heads around the simple fact that all their stuff was given to them as a gift from someone larger, definitely, and much wiser, debatable than them but they couldn't get it and the bigger question though is is this do we get it do we get it and listen this is for all of us Uh, some of you uh, here might switch off and say well I don't have lots so this is about them 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 or them over there but God wants us all to grow through and in stewardship This wasn't a rich church, the Philippian church. We know that. This church was poor. Very, very poor. Poverty-stricken, actually. 2 Corinthians 8 tells us about this church. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, think think what that would have looked like in their day, welled up in rich generosity. This is a poor church. Philippians is a thank you letter from Paul to a poverty-stricken church for their for, uh, for their provision in his time of need. And do you know what? That should be encouraging and engaging to all of us. No one's left out. However little, however much we have, stewardship jubilee is God's gift to you and to me. What a God. New people, New Christians, those of you who've maybe grown up in this church and are now earning, those of you who were asylum seekers maybe in the past but now have legal permission to work and stay, those of you who God is calling to sacrificially up your generosity, your giving, God would love you. 
love you to get on board. Join, continue the journey. Give generously to all, everything that God is calling us to do. Many of you do that. I know that already. Thank you so much. Well done. This is a good church. This is a generous church. This church has been built on good foundations. But God always brings this to our attention. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, For God loves a cheerful giver. It should make you smile. No one's smiling. (laughs) Biblical stewardship jubilee challenges us to rethink our giving and possessions. The question we should be asking jubilee is not, not how much of my money should I be giving away, but rather how much of God's money should I be keeping for myself? That's a different way of thinking about it, isn't it? Secondly, this passage helps us to see what a good steward looks like. Yeah? A biblical understanding of stewardship is partly a character thing. It's both a means and a fruit of how God the Holy Spirit is changing us closely, intimately, shaping us, making us more and more generous and giving like Jesus. So what are the characteristics of a good steward that we can learn from? What does one look like? How do we become a good steward? And I think this passage gives us four descriptions of a generous giver, or a generous church. Four things, four things. Concern, contentment, consistency, and confidence. Yeah? Concern, contentment, consistency, uh, and confidence. So let's look at these things very quickly. Firstly, concern. If I am concerned, compassionate about something, I'm much more likely to give generously. That's just a fact. Uh, See verse 10, it says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. You renewed your concern for me. You renewed it. Uh, Also in verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Share in my troubles. They were in this together through the highs and the lows. Their generous stewardship was motivated by this bond of fellowship and closeness and concern in the church and actually across the churches. I love how Paul starts this chapter, chapter 4. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, and long for my crown, my joy, stand firm in the Lord. He loves them, doesn't it? It's clear, it's gushing. We love you. And I thank, for the, thank you for the love you showed us as a family over the years. When we give to the church, to the poor, to the needy, we give out of love. How I pay my tax bill and how I'm going to pay for my son's birthday present on Tuesday, Jesh, is different. The motivations are different. Although I I don't mind paying my tax bill, but I know lots of people don't. Paul longs to see the goodness and purpose of God play out in their lives. He's saying, I have a kingdom ambition for you. That's his concern. That's his investment. Terry Virgo writes this, how we show love will determine whether people think it's worth belonging in this church. We're growing. We're growing because me and Gavin and Simon are doing some brilliant, brilliant work in the office. (laughs) No, it's not. How you show love, Jubilee, will determine whether people think it's worth staying and belonging in this church. 
and you're doing brilliantly. Our Alpha Nights are drenched with love. People feel it at Sparklers, Open Door, on Sundays in the football team, in hope. He says this in uh, 1 uh, Thessalonians 2.19. He says, For what is our hope, our joy, our, our crown, in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, the church? That's a nice thing to say. Jubilee, keep cultivating this love. And let it well up into greater generosity and service. Like the lines in that song, we didn't sing it this morning, Hosanna. Uh, Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom cause. Good stewards cultivate concern, compassion, gush with love. Second uh, characteristic from this passage is contentment. See verse 11, for I have learned... He doesn't say, I'm just content. He says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And Paul went through lots of circumstances. Why does he say, the word? Why does he say learned? I'll tell you why. Because contentment, certainly to me, contentment doesn't come naturally. It's not simply a character trait. It comes from an understanding uh, for it comes from understanding the mystery of the gospel, the joy news of Jesus. See verse 12 onwards. It says this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and, in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, all this, through him who strengthens me. You see, I guess that's it. If you're happy with what you have, you'll, you'll probably view your, you, you'll probably use your possessions for the benefit of others and other causes. If you think what you've got is, is plenty. I'm going to unpack this a little bit more because it really helped me when I heard about this. If, we, if what I think I have is way up there, yeah, and what I think I deserve is way down there, then that gap is gratitude. Yeah, it's generosity. However, on the other side, if, I, if what I think I have is way down here, and what I think I deserve is way up there, then actually that gap is grumbling and stinginess. That's how it plays out in my life. That's what Paul has learned. When you read Paul's letters, you read time and time again that he says, I deserve so little and have so much. He's always talking about grace, grace, grace. He was saying that I was the chief of sinners. He was singing the lines, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me 1,700 years before it was even written. He's so often teaching himself and others that you have loads in Christ even though you deserve very little. And what does that lead to? Well, here's a man who's in a Roman jail, wrongly arrested, his reputation has been destroyed, and now he's awaiting trial and possible death, and he's writing this very letter that we've just read to the church at Philippi, he is, and as he's writing it, he's literally shackled to a Roman guard 24-7, and he wants his friends in the Philippian church, who he loves to know that God has filled his heart with joy. How do you do that? Listen, 
That's the gap between what he thinks he deserves and what he knows completely, completely sufficiently, what he knows he has in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, abundantly, lavishly, give us all things? Listen, do you worship your money as God? Or do you worship God with your money, however much you have? Two very different things. Good stewards, good stewards, Jubilee, not stewards. Good stewards cultivate concern, compassion, and love. Good stewards <laughs> are always learning and growing in how to be content in all situations through Jesus who gives me strength. Thirdly, they are consistent. They are consistent. See verse 15 onwards. In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even, as, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once. I have received full payment and have more. I'm amply supplied. What's he doing? He, Paul, even in his thankfulness, is forever the teacher. He's listing some examples where they have consistently given to him. At the beginning, then when he was in Thessalonica, more than once, a few times, and now while he's in prison. In fact, he says sometimes you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. It wasn't always easy to get their gifts to Paul. The Philippian church were consistent givers, or tried to be, not just one-offs. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16.2, On the first day of every week, it's much clearer here, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in, in keeping with your income. That's what he says. You know what? I thank God for standing orders. <laughs> so does he. Praise Jesus for standing orders. When I don't feel like being generous, when fear replaces my faith, when I've had a bad week or I'm just feeling grumpy, standing orders keep me on track. They don't allow my fluctuating ups and downs stop me from committing to what I've promised. Commitment, consistency rooted in faith shapes our discipleship. It really does. If you don't give this way, please consider it. Not everybody, it's not going to be appropriate for everybody, but if you can, consider giving this way. There are forms on the back uh, to make this happen today, to help us plan, actually, to make us better stewards of what you give. And as a very important aside, while we're talking about forms, um, if you identify your giving that way, or any other way, we can claim the tax back off Boris. Yeah. So, but you need to fill out a gift aid form, so please do that. Thousands and thousands of pounds go to the work of Jubilee through gift aid. So fill out these forms if you can. Standing order, gift aid forms. I'm getting very practical and administrative now. I know way out of my comfort zone. So next, when it comes to consistency, how do you decide how much to give regularly? These are the questions we're thinking, aren't we? 
The big question, it's the big question, in the Old Testament, tithing was how they gave. They gave away a tenth of their gross wealth. Yeah, 10% to the Levites, who were the priests of the then church to fund ministry. Jesus, however, always, on my reading of the Gospels, is Jesus, however, always raised our expectations. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, whether he's talking about um, anger, marriage, relationships, your neighbor, the needy, prayer, Jesus always called us to a higher place, motivated, listen, motivated by the highest gift of all, him. His sacrifice for his, his, his rescue gift, grace. Giving, Jubilee, was no exception. Jesus moves us from tithing, I believe, to grace-filled, faith-erupting, Jesus-loving generosity. He moves us from the bare minimum to give, uh, the, the bare minimum to a giving that costs us. We should feel it. A level of giving uh, that means making radical lifestyle changes or adjustments to the point of not having what other people or your peers have. It will look different. Someone phrased it like this. We need to live lives that demand an explanation. I like that. Or let me put it another way. Our giving should demand an explanation. For some of you, that might be giving away 10%. For some of you, it might be 50%. I don't know. That's between you and Jesus. He raises the bar. Always. Jubilee, God wants you to excel in grace-filled giving to the point that you trust him more and more for all of your provision. That's a challenge. I remember when I first became part of Jubilee uh, about 20-odd years ago after coming to faith on an Alpha course, another great Alpha course, and I remember thinking... What, and I remember thinking, what have I got to offer? I remember sitting in community group, or we used to call them small groups then, uh, too scared to contribute. Uh, wouldn't say a single prayer, me and Carl. Uh, wouldn't share any insights uh, or thoughts. Week in, week out. It became embarrassing, didn't it, Carl? Then, in the midst of all of this, I remember Jeremy saying to me, Raj, have you, you've been part of us for some time now. You're working, but I notice you're not giving to the church. Some of you look shocked. Is it? And he asked me, he asked me pastorally, is everything okay? Now, you might be thinking, that's really awkward. That's a bit in your face. But Jeremy knew your wallet is where your heart revealed itself most accurately. And he saw my heart. And so he was concerned and had the courage to provoke me. We talked about it. I told him about how I was feeling inadequate in small group. We went through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and suddenly the penny dropped. This was a way that I could contribute to the church that didn't uh, involve me opening my mouth. This was a way that God could use me. And do you know what? It filled me with a renewed excitement for God, for church. My, my wages were a gift from God that I could use for good. Consistent giving released something in me that broke through all my other insecurities and lies. And it made me smile. God loves a cheerful giver. Do you want to be a good steward? Do you want more of the joy of Jesus? Do you want to be happier? Stewardship is one of the ways that Jesus releases that. Finally, God's stewards are confident in God. 
Verse 3, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's what Paul says in a prison with no hope. Well, no, no earthly hope. In Christ, he knew he had hope. Now and forever in Jesus. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We have a heavenly bank, uh, bank account where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also follow. What journey, Jubilee, are you allowing Jesus to take your heart on? Randy Alcorn writes about this verse. What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven instead of on earth? It means that Christ offers us the incredible opportunity to trade earthly goods and currency for eternal kingdom rewards. By putting our money and possessions in his treasury, we assure ourselves of eternal rewards, eternal rewards beyond comprehension. That's a biblical motivation. Listen, I'm increasingly learning that God will provide. I'm decreasingly fretting and stressing when the numbers don't add up. I'm increasingly learning to step out in faith and action when God says to do so rather than just what I see before me. You're helping me with that. It's difficult for me. Michael and Mabel, Akosha and Ghana, Andy Colclough, Jen, Shirley, Stu, Liz, Paul, Baz Mohammed, Angela, Jonathan Knight, Lou Watts, many of you, lots of others, are teaching me about that kind of faith. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That's our generous God. That's the generous God we've been worshipping. That's our lavish God. That's our rich, rich, abundantly rich God. Nothing can surpass his grace and provision jubilee. He is the pearl of greatest price. So continue to give generously. Increasingly give generously in faith. Start, if that's appropriate for you, on the adventure of generosity if you're new. Thank you for all your sacrifice and overflowing grace. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. We're not going to have a song this, mor uh, this morning to end. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the greatest giver. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the abundant giver. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that money is just money. But you call us to use it wisely to glorify your name. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we think about these things, uh, come and pray to you about these things, think about how the church, how we can uh, serve the church, I pray, Lord God, that this doesn't feel awkward, that actually you release us by your Spirit into grace-filled, joy-bringing, life-changing, life-changing stewardship. Lord Jesus, I thank you for healings this morning. I thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you. I thank you for the joy of hands raised, hearts declaring the joy of Jesus. I thank you for everything you call us to. And we want to press on in faith in every single way.
touch our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.